So we are nearing the end of uh, this class on worship. Um, we have technically a month of the Sunday school trimester left, but with uh, Pastor Bob self will be here next week in Sunday school, and then two weeks after that, Pastor Donnie Martin will be here Sunday school, um, and I may not be here the week in between those, so uh, we are um, coming to an end rather quickly. So you only have to put up with me for two or three more Sundays up here. Um, but what we've been doing, if you've not been in here, is you know we've been going through uh, kind of three different perspectives on worship. We considered biblically from the Bible what does the, what does the Bible teach us about worship, uh, and we considered um, how has the church throughout the ages, briefly, but how have the church has the church understood worship and how is it practiced uh, its worship, and then today going forward in the next couple of weeks, what we want to do is coming out of that, considering especially the, I think the word I used last week was the quagmire, this mess that we sort of uh, are in uh, culturally today with sort of easy believism and the assault on the church that's coming and the disdain for prescriptive worship that everybody just sort of, you know, like the book of Judges, everybody kind of does what's right in his own eyes. Um, so how do we then respond to that? What is it that we want our worship to look like? Uh, and so there are different elements of worship that we want to consider. Uh, but first, um, leading into that, we need to talk about something that we've alluded to, we've laid the groundwork for, but we've not necessarily explicitly talked about, and that is Anybody know? I think I mentioned it last week. It's a principle. What principle is that? The, yeah, the regulative principle of worship. Um, God, what we've seen, what does God think about the way he's worshipped? So that's a question to you. Does God care how he is worshipped? He does. He's deadly serious about how he's worshipped. Now, I think it comes very easy to us to grasp the notion that God cares that he's worshipped. Right? That makes sense. But I think, and maybe it's because of our sort of the culture we're in, but I think even for us it can be difficult to grasp and believe that God cares how he's worshipped. We might say, well, of course there are some things that are off limits, but generally God says, you know, it's, it's the uh, thought that counts kind of thing. That's not exactly true. So in Scripture, we've seen that worship, to be accepted by God, must first be made possible by Him, and it must be done on His terms, or in the way that He prescribes. Uh, a couple of places that we've mentioned before, Exodus 20 uh, is where we see the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And uh, which commandment has history typically looked toward to see this, uh, this aspect of, of worship, that God cares how he's worshipped? Do you remember? What's that? Yeah, you can speak up. So. 
the uh, second commandment. Um, right? God begins. He says, you shall not have any other gods before me. And then he goes on and says, and you shouldn't worship me. Essentially, he says, you can't use idols and created things in the place of me. So whether you're worshiping the wrong gods or the right God in the wrong way, God says that's inexcusable. Uh, a great example of this, not where they didn't make a statue, but in Leviticus 10, I think it's also recounted in Numbers 3, uh, is the, the deaths of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They come as priests before God offering what? Unauthorized fire, it says. Strange fire. Fire that he did not permit. And what happened? They were struck dead. And that seems extreme to us, but God is making the point that He has been clear about what He desires in His worship from His people. And when we come with our own thoughts, our own imagination, coming on our own terms, I'm going to worship God the way that I see fit, He does not take that lightly. That is an offense to His holiness. Right. Um, yeah, so uh, the typical kind of Protestant response to the crucifix, which is, so there's the cross, and the crucifix is the cross with Jesus on it, uh, is that Jesus is no longer on the cross, um, that while it is the cross that we celebrate, and Jesus on the cross that we celebrate, that is a completely incomplete, completely incomplete, very incomplete picture uh, if we don't have the empty tomb. Um, and so, uh, additionally, when you take into consideration the, the, the element of the second commandment about not making these graven images, uh, people have also said that you know, having you know, this image of Jesus on a cross is not appropriate. So, uh, I guess, I mean, I won't speak for all Christians of all time on that subject, but... That, yeah, that's essentially not something that I would I would recommend as a biblical practice having a crucifix. So <clears throat> God cares not only that we worship Him, but that we worship Him rightly. And so that is, in effect, the regular principle of worship that God has said how He is to be worshipped, and so we are to worship Him by His prescription. We see this, uh, they don't use the phrase regulative principle, but in our um, confession, um, in the middle of the first paragraph, we read, The acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by Himself, and so limited by His own revealed will, that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations or any, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. And so that's, again, gets to that point that God has prescribed how he's to be worshipped and we are to worship Him not by our own imagination and will, but according to what He has said, without visible representations. 
Jesus is the image of God. He needs no other. Uh, and we are the image of God. But he needs no other images here. Right? Why is it so wrong to make an image? Because God has already done that for us. Um, Deuteronomy 12 is a really helpful passage in this regard. So if you guys want to turn there, we're kind of going to read through it. Um, not the whole thing, but most of it, and we'll make a few comments along the way. So Deuteronomy 12. Um, you're, if you remember, Deuteronomy is basically a series of sermons that Moses preaches to the Israelites as they are about to enter the promised land. Uh, they had their shot in Numbers 13. They send in the spies, and the spies are like, oh no, they're too big and scary. And so God judges them. They wander around in the desert for uh, you know, another 38 years, and then they all die off, and they're back now. And Moses is giving his final charge to the people, because Moses is not going to enter the promised land either, because he strikes the, the rock with the stick after God told him to speak to it. And so this is uh, part of his instruction to the people of God before they go and take the promised land under Joshua's charge. He says, These are the statutes and the rules that, uh, that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Right? So we pause there. He doesn't say, don't worship the other gods that they're worshiping. He says, do not worship your God in the way that they are worshiping theirs. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put His name and to make His habitation there. There you shall go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the contribution that you present and your vows and your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herd and, your flo- and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For you have not yet, you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, And when He gives you the rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, etc. You shall rejoice before the Lord, in verse 12. You and your sons and your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. And so, he is stressing what? 
it is not up to the Israelites when they enter the promised land to worship as they please. To do what's right in their own eyes, but to do what is right in God's. The regular principle which drawn out of this that God is serious about the way He's worshipped. And that does not change in the New Testament. We see just in uh, John 4, right, that God desires what? Worshippers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Objective truth that God has revealed to us. And so this principle helps assure us, right, because so what's the other than the fact that we can, that if we're saying, all right, well, this is what God expects, but what's, what's the real positive swing here? It assures us that our worship is Bible-filled and Bible-directed, right? This is not a, these are not, the idea of the regular principle and the elements that we'll, we'll talk about um, the rest of today and times we have left, that they're not these straitjackets that we're just imposing ourselves because we're afraid of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, I've had people tell me that, that, oh, you guys, it's like, your church is sort of like a museum. I was like, so yours is like a carnival then, I guess? Um, but it's not to be restrictive for the sake of being restrictive, but because God knows what's best, and He desires what's best. And so, while we can't say that our worship here is, is perfect, right? We, we are, have not attained uh, all that there is to know and to understand, but we can say that we aim for our, our worship, our practice here, to be as in line with what God has revealed in His Scripture as possible. And any time we find ourselves out of sync with what God has prescribed, we want to reform our worship. We know that the substance and structure are biblical. The content and order are biblical. Reformed worship is by the book in two ways. Uh, in its, its marrow and its means. That what it's made of in the way that it's practice are supplied by Holy Scripture. So questions on that? Because we're, I, wanna, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that because we've been really laboring to, I think, make that point all class long. But uh, as far as the regular principle itself, any questions before we look at what a worship service should look like or comments? Okay, cool. So what should a worship service look like? First, um, basically, I just I want to run through the list, and then we'll go back and kind of talk about them. So the different elements that should find themselves in any given worship service would be a call to worship, uh, a public affirmation of faith, confession and uh, pardon of sins, scripture reading, Christ-centered sermons, uh, prayers, benedictions and charges, uh, the ordinances, Lord's Supper and baptism, 
And more or less, that's pretty much it. Um, and singing, if I didn't, I guess I didn't mention that one. So those are the, the different uh, elements that should find that we should insert into our worship services. Um, and of course, we want them to be biblically directed and informed as well. So a call to worship. What uh, Psalm 100, let's turn there. Uh, would somebody like to read that for us loud and clear? Great. So, this psalm is a, a great example of, of what a call to worship is. Well, what is a call to worship, you ask? Good question. It's typically a few lines of Scripture or a combination of Scripture text expressed by a worship leader or pastor at the beginning of a church service and it exhorts God's people to turn from worldly distractions to focus hearts, minds, and actions on revering Him. Right? We, we come each week on the Lord's Day gathered and we're, we're busy, we're tired maybe, we're distracted, we've been planning a wedding, we've had family struggles, we've had sickness or death, we've had stress at work, right? All, all kinds of things that we bring to, uh, to one another, we bring before the Lord on the Lord's Day. And, and so when we begin our worship, we begin with this call to worship, to, to set those things aside. To focus our efforts, our minds, our hearts, our actions, our energy on worshiping God. And so there are some principles from Psalm 100 that I want to talk about for a few minutes. Uh, Verse 1 says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. 100, yeah. Um... Anybody know what uh, kind so, well, make a joyful noise, serve the Lord. Are those questions? Are those uh, mere statements? What's that? Commands, right? They're imperatives, right? This, the Lord is calling us, commanding us, inviting us to worship Him. When the psalmist penned these words... He's writing the very words of God. And when these words, or words like them, taken from maybe other places in the Bible, or at least in line with them, are uttered every week, they're speaking on God's behalf. The call to worship is not some unnecessary, just sort of fluffy greeting of human cordiality, but is at once a, waiting, a weighty responsibility and a joyful privilege. Right? Imagine, you know, in America with our system of government and people's general disdain for our president and everything, we don't maybe necessarily get the sense of this, but 
Imagine you lived in a place where, you know, you respected your ruler more or, um, you know, he maybe in some sense you felt more direct, his more direct power over you, kind of where we're headed maybe. Um, Imagine if he sends you a summons to come before him, right? There's a weightiness and a responsibility in that call, right? The king calls. It's not, honestly, bro, I'm just super busy. And I have to, I'll, can we link up next week? Right? And the king calls, you answer. And God, then, when we gather each week, he is calling us to come together to worship him. It's not a mere formality or a convenient way of beginning. It's not just sitting around going, I don't know. What do you think, Nick? What's the, what's the best way that we can just kind of get things started each week? Oh, I know. We'll just we'll read something from the Bible because we're Christians. Right? We are intentional about making clear what we're here to do. You are each and every week publicly invited to worship God, to commit yourselves to the worship of God, the sovereign Lord of the universe, with His people. Church is not just a party with friends, or a lecture on religion, or a concert of sacred music. We gather each week, we come into the presence of the King of the universe before whom all creation will bow and for whom all heaven now sings. And so our call to worship is a formal invitation from God to come and to worship Him. Questions about that? Okay, so secondly, so first we see that this call to worship is a command. It, we are commanded, invited to worship. Second, in a call to worship, we are making clear that we are worshiping God and responding to Him on the basis of His revelation. And we've, this is, that's not a new concept. We said that over and over again in this class. Fundamentally, worship is a response to God on the terms that He sets in the way that He makes possible. And we find those things where? Yeah, in the Word. God's revelation is revealed to us in His revelation that He's given to us, His Word. We don't approach God on, his, on our terms, but on His. And so the scriptural call to worship sets forth God's Word as the objective reality on which we base all our actions each week. One author said, When God speaks, it is our obligation and privilege to respond appropriately in praise, prayer, repentance, testimony, encouragement of others, and service to what He declares about Himself. And here in Psalm 100... God reveals Himself. Verse 3, Know what? That the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. This truth 
is meant to... Well, let me ask you. Why, why is that there? Is that, is that just information? Again, we have this, you know, know that the Lord is a command, but is, is the psalmist just wanting his reader to just know information about God for the quiz? Yeah. Right? The truth is meant to move the people to praise, to reverence, to worship. Right? Because immediately following verse 3, which we didn't read all, we'll come back to that next part, but verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Why? Because he's God. Because he made us. And we are his people. The sheep of his pasture. It is not enough to, to simply inform ourselves about God. That we have information about Him. We know things about Him. We know doctrines. We can tell you what He's like. If you don't care what He's like, or don't love what He is like, then that is not worship. So the call to worship has an imperative quality. Well, thirdly, God calls us to respond to His redemption. He has redeemed us. So we we respond to revelation. We respond to... We're not only... He's not only created us and revealed Himself to us as Creator, but He has... For Christians, He has redeemed us from sin, slavery to sin, and death. And He's revealed Himself to us as such. We are His people, His special people, bought with the blood of His own Son. We are the sheep of His pasture. And what? Verse 5, He is good and His love is steadfast and endures forever. Like, in what direction? Toward us. (laughs) Not just generally, right? Love has an object. While we would say that God is the supreme object of the love of God, are we not also an object of the love of God? His faithfulness to Himself, and then because of that, His faithfulness to His people endures for all generations. So while in a call, a call to worship, in a worship service, uh, the, the entirety of the gospel message likely will not be present. Um, features of the gospel inevitably glisten, one, one author says. Right? While the A to Z of the gospel may not be laid out in the, the few words that, that Nick, you know, speaks to us each morning as we be, each week as we begin may not be gospel A to Z, but elements, features of the gospel glisten, and we, we see that though we are weak, He's welcoming. Though we are weighed down by our iniquities, and they are great, He remains inviting. Isn't that amazing? 
Think of the week that you just had. It's possible some of you are sitting here going, think of the week I just had. It was a great week. I was, I was super. But I'm guessing if you're anything like me, you're going, thank God that I'm here today, still alive, and that God didn't turn me away when I got to the door. Though we are weak, He's inviting. So this call to worship that, that we have every week speaks to us and tells us your sin may not be safe here, but you are. If you have entrusted yourself, trust your, entrust yourself to Christ and come to Him. All right, thoughts, questions on a call to worship. We've got just probably two more of these things that we're going to try to do today, and then we'll try to finish up as we go. All right, cool. Uh, secondly, then, um, something that should be present um, in our worship is an affirmation of our faith. An affirmation of faith is something, uh, and it can take different forms, but it provides for the expression of the church's most basic and deeply held beliefs. Right? What do we believe as Christians? What, does, what ought the church have, uh, you know, for the church to be the church, we agree on this in all ages, all times, and all places. And so, a very common way of doing that is congregational uh, recitation. So, we'll recite the Apostles' Creed together or the Nicene Creed, something like that. Um, that's not the only way that you have affirmation of faith. Uh, we do that uh, regularly. Not as, as often as maybe um, would be helpful, but we're, we're moving in that direction to do it more often. But uh, in our songs, we affirm the faith when we sing certain songs. Um, when we have various uh, different passages of Scripture read out, uh, in our, our, uh, even in the, the call to worship, there's elements of affirming the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. And so, why do we do that? Right? We kind of see maybe what it is. We expression where we, we state what we have believed, but why do we do it? A quote. By affirming what we believe, we renew our convictions we attest our continuing belief in the historical truths of Christianity. We indicate our support of those who have been persecuted for their faith. We humble ourselves before the truths of Scripture. We provide testimony of our faith to our children and to the watching world. We declare our loyalty to God and renew in heart and mind the truths on which we base our daily lives, and on which we have staked the eternal destiny of our souls. What a, a blessing and a privilege it is that we can gather week in and week out and not only be invited by the King to His worship, but we may 
publicly profess and confess that which we believe. And so, like I said, often that's done when reciting the Apostles' Creed or uh, the Nicene Creed, Athanasian Creed, different, these, not all kinds of, but, you know, the ecumenical creeds, some of them, um, different passages of Scripture. Uh, I want to read the Apostles' Creed just um, so that we have in mind the, the, a very specific kind of thing of what we're talking about. So, if I was more prepared, I would have maybe had it up on the screen. Is there any way you can do that, Mark? We can say it together? That would be cool. I just thought of doing that on the spot. So, Nick would have thought of it before. Weeks ago. Like, when he thought of doing this class to begin with, he would have said, I'm going to have it up on the screen. Okay. Um, So, let's say this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Quick note, if you've not heard before, a couple things in there. Um, Holy Catholic Church, uh, Catholic, more of a word, small c, I think, was up there for uh, universal, right? So just a church, all times, all, all believers everywhere, not the Roman Catholic Church. Um, Christ descending into hell, um, different takes on that, but he didn't, we're not saying that he went to hell after he died and suffered again. That, this idea of the descent into earth, hell on the cross and all that. But what's the book called? Defense of the Descent? Yeah. yeah. Good short little work on that if you have questions. Um, also, did that have Holy Ghost up there? Yeah. Okay. Some people say spirit rather than ghost, but I had ghosts, so. Anyways, that's the kind of thing that we can come together each week, and while we don't do that in that exact form each and every week, it's something that ought to be at least a regular practice of the church that we're coming together to confess what we believe. Anytime you say amen to a prayer, you are affirming that what has been prayed and offered is, in fact, in line with historical truth of the gospel. Right? Amen is so be it. Truth. Um, questions on affirmation, confession of faith. Cool. All right. This will be the last thing that we'll go over today. Confession, pardon of sin. One of the most significant things that we do each week during and we do this every week during our worship, is we confess 
our sin. Why is that so important? Yes. Right? If, if we confess our sins, God will forgive us. If we, are, if we come each week to worship with no desire, no aim, no practice of confessing our sins, there's a hypocrisy there, right? We're coming to worship God, perhaps unwilling to let go of our sins. Now, uh, just because we have a time of pub, you know of private and public confession in the church doesn't mean that we're all going to confess our sins. But that practice, right? We want to be practicers of repentance, of confession. Those in whom the Spirit of God dwells long to confess their sins to experience the mercy of God. Right? If I'm holding on to my sins, am I going to feel, am I going to experience God's mercy toward me? One author put it this way. He says, it's impossible to know the grace of God if we have no awareness of our sin. He says, the grace of God has no present glory if the sin it overcomes is not a present reality. And the ministry of Christ has no significance if the sin He came to defeat will not even be faced. Right? The greatness of the Gospel to deliver me from my sins is lost on me if I don't acknowledge my sins. And so each week we want to come together to acknowledge our sin. And so I think there are a lot of ways that a a kind of a a public confession of sin can be um, burdensome, right? Uh, And perhaps not necessarily realistic in the way that it expresses our own struggles and our present feelings. Um, You know, maybe we come and we just sort of recite the same exact thing week after week after week. Uh, certainly there'd be a you know, wrong way to do it, I think. You know, all right, um, so we're just going to start here and work our way this way, and we're just going to let everybody know everything that's going on. God is watching, so if you don't tell us everything, He will kill you. <laughs> right, you say something like that. I, I don't think that's going to help people. Uh, face their, their sins. They're just gonna, they're gonna be really afraid of you. And so while that's that's true, it's vitally important that we do confess our sins together and privately. In confession, we run into the arms of God with sin sick hearts because we know that his grace is sufficient boundless and free. And His grace is already there. Right? We, we repent if God has set His love on us. Right? Our repentance is not the thing that sets off the chain reaction. Then God's like, okay, good. 
He's repented now. We can, we can, we can, I can work with this guy. Right? We repent because God has set his love on us, has given us new life. And so, um, you know, and repentance is not a, it's not a one-time thing. It's a, it's a daily thing. It's an hourly thing, it ought to be. Continued expression of our dependence upon God. Not just for our daily bread, but for our eternity. In our confession, we experience God's love because we confront our sin with the greatness of mercy that is already ours through faith in Christ. But we do not earn, gain, or force God's pity by the words or weight of our confession. When I read that this week, I, that struck me, right? It is not the, the most penitent one out there that God loves most. Maybe the one that God loves most is the most penitent, but it, it's not the other way around. If my receiving the mercy of God depends upon how deep my sorrow is in any given moment, then really can't we say that the only person who truly can receive the mercy of God is, would have been Jesus with true sincerity that actually, in its own right, pleases God. Now, Jesus never had sin to confess. But, certainly, I am banking my... Right, because that idea of, you know, earning favor with God, it's subtle, right? The more sorry I am, the more He will love me. The more I express it, the more he'll love me, right? My, God's love for me is based upon Jesus, period, and his work appropriated to me. My, the depth of my faith, the depth of my sorrow is not something that motivates God or forces him to give me more grace and mercy. We are forgiven because Christ was forsaken. Not because our contrition is adequate. I think sometimes, to kind of change the directions a little bit, we, we think of uh, like a sermon or confession. Like, we want, like, uh, I think we even talked about this last week. Like, we, maybe we want to leave church kind of feeling like, What's the phrase? My toes are stepped on, right? If I can leave feeling more like sinful than when I left, like that's good. I want to like kind of wallow in self-pity, like poor me. You know, we're like the uh, martyrs all the time, just in our in our own mind. Like we're, I'm just, I'm the worst person ever. God doesn't love me, and so confession is really. It's basically the only time I ever get anything out of worship because I've just got so much to confess and right? That's we don't talk about sin, we don't confess our sins so that we get lost in despair. 
we, we confess our sin, we talk about sin so that our spiritual bankruptcy in our own right is made evident to us, but then so that our hearts engaged and arrested by the love of God experience afresh His riches and love. Right? We leave here, yes, feeling and recognizing our sin more. But we also leave, we want to leave recognizing and feeling experiences the love of God to cover my sins more because of the work of Christ. The pastor is not, you know, uh, the guy with the club just beating us all over the head. He has the law, right? The, that pierces to our hearts, but then there's the balm of the gospel that's necessary. And so confession of sin is not to confess sins for the sake of sins. But uh, real quick, lastly then, um, pardon. The idea of pardon. When you hear pardon, we think maybe Roman Catholicism, you know, priests granting in themselves pardon to people. That's not in any way we're talking about. It's important in our confession of sin, and it's really just this comes right on the heels of what we were just saying, that we don't, that we walk away realizing that our sins, if we have Trusted in Christ are forgiven. Right? Shame is past. Guilt is gone. Divine mercy is now mine. The issuing forth of this assurance of pardon is not the pastor's way of telling you, I have granted you absolution and you are now good to go until your next mortal sin and make sure you're back here to see me. Right? This is God telling you that because of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. And so, oftentimes in uh, our prayers, it's, it's as simple as, you know, uh, I say this a lot, you know, that from 1 John 2, 9, right? If we confess our sins, what mom said earlier, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Right? It's not just a way to end a prayer, but something that we want to believe and to own when we confess our sins. Right? This, the idea of confession and pardon, you are not coming to God through Nick or the elders, right? Or, you know, uh, any, which any of us are praying, it's not, okay, good, right? Where we come to God because someone else prays for us. We come because who is praying for us that matters? Jesus, right? Right now, Jesus is interceding for us. When you are sitting there confessing the same sin week week out, He is interceding for you. So in our prayer of confession, we want to clearly articulate not only that we are sinners and we have sinned, but that through Christ, we have forgiveness and our sins no longer condemn us. Okay, so um, questions? Thoughts? Comments? Rebukes? Anything? What's that? Yes, I would not have thrown out the word. I wouldn't have asked for a rebuke if Nick was still here. Um, Okay, 
So we'll wrap up there, um, and we've got several other things that we're going to try to hit um, two weeks from now and then two weeks from then maybe. Um, I do think that whether or not I'm here, uh, I think I'm preaching at uh, CCRBC that week, and so um, Nick will be in here, I think, doing just this. So I'll just give him whatever I was going to talk about, and he'll... He'll do that. So, two more times of worship, and then we'll have a new Sunday school class starting in uh, uh, September.